The first investment that my husband and I made when we were done with college was the purchase of a brand new car. Now, I am really not a car kind of girl. I don't really, you know, get into the whole car thing. I've always said that if I can get in it, put the key in, it can get me from A to B. That's all that really matters. But we had a nice kind of car that died when we were in college. And my grandmother was just kind enough that she said, well, you can have my old car. And her old car was kind of an old granny car called a Dodge Swinger. Anybody know what those are? Yeah, so I was grateful because we had a car and we, we needed a car. But I have to tell you that when we bought a new, a brand new car, I'd never had a brand new car, and it was a Mazda GLC four-speed, I really liked it. It was new and it was clean and and I liked zipping around town in it. And my husband and I would always kind of say, okay, whoever goes the furthest, they get to drive the Mazda that day because the Mazda got really good gas mileage. So one day, the lot of the Mazda fell to me and I went and got in the car and I looked at that little orange needle for the gas gauge and it looked like it was like way kind of close down there on E. And I said to my husband, I don't think I'm going to have enough gas. He said, oh, honey, you're going to be fine. The Mazda has an 11-gallon tank, and it takes 33 miles an hour. You will have plenty of gas, he said. Plenty of gas to get where you're going. You know where this is going, right? So I got in my car with full and complete trust, turned on the key, turned on my cassette player, and sang all the way to work. And then on my way home from work, I was driving home, and all of a sudden, my new car, it, it started making funny noises. And since I had never run out of gas before, I didn't know what running out of gas noises sounded like. But pretty soon I sputtered over to the side of the road and looked at that little orange needle and it was way on the wrong side of that E. What's a 22-year-old girl supposed to do? I was kind of in no man's land. There weren't any businesses. There weren't any houses. I certainly had no cell phone. And it was miles to my home. And I can promise you that the boots I was wearing were not made for walking. And so I sat there and contemplated, okay, what am I going to do? And suddenly from behind me came a car. And in it were two kind of middle-aged men in business suits. And they said, hey, do you need a ride? Now, Even back in 1980, I knew that that was not a great decision. It was kind of a risky choice, right? But I really felt like I was completely out of options. So I threw caution to the wind and said, sure, thanks. And I climbed into the back seat. Now, you might call me crazy, or you might call me foolish, or or you might call me brave. 
but what you really need to call me is mad as a hornet at that man who told me everything was gonna be fine. You know, I don't know if you have ever had an experience like that. It's an awful feeling. You're driving down the road, 60 miles an hour. You think that you're sure of your ride, you're sure of your destination. And all of a sudden, you have totally lost power. I don't know. Maybe you do know. Maybe you have literally run out of gas. Or or maybe on your journey, you've had a similar experience emotionally where you thought everything was going great and all of a sudden, you've stalled out. But I have to admit to you that though that was the very last time this girl has ever run out of gas, that, that is how I often feel about the Christian church and our fulfilling of the Great Commission. Jesus' command to tell all the world about him. Looking back, it seems like we started out strong and sure, but have we run out of gas? According to data published in 2020 by Barna Group, only one in four Americans is a practicing Christian. The number of people who report that they read their Bibles consistently is a less than inspiring 35%. And though 69% of Americans say that they pray, that is not a daily figure, but maybe a weekly figure. I wonder, would Adventists score better? I don't know. The director of the Adventist Church's archives reported in 2020 that in the last 50 years, though we had over 40 million members worldwide, over 16 million of them had slipped out the back door while we weren't looking. And though there are slightly more Adventists now than ever before, he reports that there is evidence that soul winning is plateauing, which means that when it comes to the Great Commission, spreading the good news that Jesus loves them and Jesus is coming back, many of us in the Adventist church, well, I guess we're just not feeling it. While we're sitting with our engines idling, looking for some great sign, are we running on empty? Most of us are familiar with the book of Acts when a group of Jesus' followers become turbocharged with the falling of the Holy Spirit. Before he returned to heaven, Jesus had told them it was going to happen. And he told them they were going to have to wait. But he didn't tell them how long they were going to have to wait. He gave them no idea. So day after day passed. But they weren't like just like idling their engines or I don't know, multitasking on their phones. If you turn with me to Acts 
chapter one, verse four. Acts chapter one, verse four. It says that all of them with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer. Now, do we even know what that really is? I mean, are you honestly able to devote 10 uninterrupted minutes to prayer, much less 10 days? When the Holy Spirit came, it really wasn't a secret thing, and it sounded a lot like a hurricane. But please don't be fooled by that metaphor. We often think of Pentecost as a group event. And the entrance of the Holy Spirit may have sounded like a freight train, but the resulting ignitions brought by the Spirit touched each person individually. Yes, they were all together in one place, but do you think that the Holy Spirit would have lit up somebody who really wasn't into it just because he was sitting next to somebody who was eager and open and combustible? I don't think so. You know, the flames of Pentecost were more like the lighting of torches than they were a forest fire. One life at a time. And I have to ask myself, before Jesus comes back, he promised that there would be another great outpouring of his spirit. But what if I'm not combustible? Will it be good enough that I sat in church here next to you all and maybe you're combustible and you can maybe transmit that to me somehow? Or is the Holy Spirit, does, does he work by osmosis? You know, sometimes we only think about this great big outpouring of the Holy Spirit in the book of Acts. But if you look back through the Bible, the Holy Spirit is woven throughout the whole book. It seems like he shows up in the most needed circumstances. He's in the very second verse of Genesis, when the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit come together to do the greatest act of creation. He is there. And he is there in the very end of Revelation, in the last few verses, when the children, he is welcoming them home, and he says, come, come. The Spirit is all throughout the Bible. And interestingly, most of the time in between, he seems to interact individually with people, coming into individual lives. The Bible says that the Spirit of God was on, was on Joseph as he was enabled to save the lives of untold thousands of people in that part of the world. When we talk about the period of the judges, Scripture mentions several times when the Spirit falls on those who 
God is using to get his people through those really rough times when they are having a lot of issues with their neighbors. In 1 Samuel, it is written that the Spirit of God rushed on a young man, kind of a timid young man, really, by the name of Saul when he calls him to become the first king of Israel. And then it says again that the Spirit rushes on a young man named David, who is the king after God's own heart. In the the area of the Bible that we call the prophets, many of those prophets have personal experiences with the Spirit. As the Spirit communicates with them, God's will and God's way, so they can communicate with his people. Even Jesus unobtrusively stays living in Nazareth until the Spirit falls on him at his baptism and then begins the most amazing event in the history of the planet as together the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit work out this plan on earth to provide an escape route for mankind. After Jesus returns to heaven, the Holy Spirit doesn't just come down at Pentecost, but he works in such famous names as Stephen as Peter, as Paul. The scripture mentions his name over and over again. When God's people are weak, when they are beaten, when they're struggling, when they're lost, the Holy Spirit has always shown up to turbocharge those who are called by God and empower his children with a message of salvation and hope. The night before he died, Jesus had a very serious discussion with his disciples about the Holy Spirit. You know, someone's last words are always very important and very memorable. And I'm really, really glad that the disciple John wrote down what Jesus said because they're kind of some of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. If you turn to John 14, John 14, verse 1, it's one of the Scriptures that we use the most frequently. We love this verse in John 14. And Jesus tells his disciples that he is going to prepare a place for them in his Father's house. And he says, in my father's house, there are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And as much as we love these verses, we read them over and over again, particularly at funerals. I don't know that the disciples heard them as really good news. I mean, Thomas anxiously responds by saying that they want to follow him, but but they don't know where he's going and they don't know the way. And then Philip challenges Jesus by saying, we just want to see the Father, okay? But Jesus responds in his patient, gentle way 
in verse 10, and he says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak of my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. I am in the Father, and the Father is in me. The Father dwells in me. You know, Jesus clearly speaks of a oneness, a oneness that we really can't understand between him and his Father. And I'm sure the disciples were as befuddled by this as we are. How does that work? What does that mean? But then Jesus goes on with some more good news for them that challenges their thinking even a little more deeply. In verse 16, he says, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and is in you. He, meaning the spirit, dwells with you and is in you. In the Greek, the word for dwell is meno, which means to stay in a certain place. And it is the same word in both descriptions. Jesus says that the Father dwells or menos in him. And then he says that the spirit dwells or menos in the disciples. Again, Jesus is talking about a a oneness, a, a completeness that we have a very hard time kind of wrapping our mind around. He goes on later and he describes it kind of in an analogy as He says, I am the vine, and you guys, you are the branches. And he tells them to abide in him, right? You're familiar with those verses, right? Abide in me, and I will abide in you. That's pretty familiar stuff, okay? Interestingly, though, the word abide is also meno, dwell, stay. That analogy goes together with what he has just previously said. Now it's time of year when we have a lot of things starting to grow. And here we have a lovely vine and some branches, right? And it's clear that the the branches can only get their life from the vine, right? And if we separate, if we separate one of the branches from the vine, What's going to happen to it? It's not going to survive, right? But then I also have to ask you, when I ask you, how many plants am I hanging up? How many is here? One. There is a oneness between God and his people as we abide in him and he in us, as we dwell in him and he dwells in us. He is offering us something so intimate and so 
special. You know, there, I think that Jesus is really trying to teach us about the unity that he wants with us, a oneness with him. But I'm not sure that on this end, we even set that as a goal for ourselves. I don't know that that is something that we even strive for. Later that night, Jesus bows his head over his disciples for the last time. And the prayer is found in John 17. And it is so full of love and so full of the heart of Jesus. But then in a futuristic addendum, Jesus, he prays for us. Look at verse 20. I do not ask for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that's us, that they may be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, and that they may be one even as we are one. The last night before his crucifixion, when Jesus knew that he would be leaving them, Jesus suggested to his disciples that they were on the cusp of the greatest personal experience with God that they could ever imagine, better than him even being there with them in person. Just as the Father and Son were one, the disciples were told that they now had the opportunity to be one with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. Not one in power, not one in omnipotence, of course not, but one in purpose and one in unity, getting the job done. And then he prayed that all of us sitting here and all of us online, that we too would be filled with that same spirit and find that same oneness. And why? John 17, 23 says it. So that the world may believe that you have sent me. How does this mysterious unity between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, how does it work? To me, it is as incomprehensible as the incarnation. Yet, we do believe that Jesus surely did come in human flesh. Jesus has also sent his Spirit to dwell in us, <coughs> excuse me, to dwell in us and equip us in human flesh so that we can spread the news of Jesus to all the world. As I was studying this, I had to ask myself, do I have any idea what this is even like? 
Do I have any idea? Do, do any of us have any idea that we experience this oneness with the power of God through the Holy Spirit? You know, his disciples were often encouraged to follow Jesus. And we're often encouraged to say, be like Jesus. Those are both very biblical concepts. But you know, how many times has someone really said to you, you need to let the Spirit dwell in you? Because that's a biblical concept too. And do we stop short in our relationship goals with God, never really achieving the relationship that God sent Jesus to provide for us. But what would that kind of relationship even look like? First off, just like the disciples, it will take a lot of time and it will take devotion. And you know, most of us are a little short on both of those. We're busy. I mean, we are. We're honestly very busy people. We have a lot of responsibilities and we have a lot of commitments. And I think we do our best to keep the, the to-do list checked off. Some of us even include in our busyness church work. And so I think we think that we're fine. Just, we're fine. But are we really? As we're speeding through our weeks, our months, our years, are we really fine? Do we pay much attention to that orange needle that indicates our own closeness with God? You know, I've been contemplating these thoughts in my brain actually since last summer. And this winter, when I would be walking the dog, I would talk to God about it. What does this mean? What do you mean by this? I don't understand it. How do you do this? And as I was breathing in that cold, frosty air this winter, as I was walking, it occurred to me that the spirit is compared to the wind, like, like Mark was telling the children, right? That the spirit is, is compared to breath or compared to the wind. And I realized that if I want to breathe out my used up air inside of my lungs, I first need to take in a big breath, right? I mean, right now, just try to breathe out a big bunch of air. How much did you get? Like hardly anything, right? Okay, now take a great big deep breath and breathe out. Huge difference, right? Okay, and I think that the Holy Spirit, we first must to breathe him in if we're going to breathe out all the used up air of our stress, of our struggle with sin, of all the things that keep us distant from a real, living, personal connection with the Holy Spirit. I don't think it's the other way around. And could it 
be if we really breathe in the Holy Spirit and receive that fresh new power that we would be able to maybe organize our lives a little bit better and that we could make him a greater priority through the power of the Spirit? You know, Martin Luther, the Protestant church reformer, once said, I have so much to do today that I'm going to need to spend three hours in prayer in order to be able to get it all done. (laughs) Can you even imagine prioritizing your life like that? As I was talking with a friend last week about all of this, as it was rolling around in my head, he said to me, I think we have trouble with the Holy Spirit because he's so squishy. We don't really understand him and we can't wrap our minds around him. And I thought, you know, that's probably right. I mean, we like the Father because we understand the concept of Father. We know what that is. That makes sense to us. We get that. And, and we, we like Jesus because, you know, the stories about how he lived out his love for us are practically irresistible. But then when we come to the Holy Spirit, it's like, mm, yeah, yeah, I guess he's okay, but I don't get him. I don't, I don't understand. And I have to wonder, is that his fault or our fault? On the day of Pentecost, when Peter is explaining to the crowds of people what just happened with those flames of fire, he uses the second chapter of Joel as a reference. And you turn to Acts 2, 17. You can read what he says. Acts chapter 2, 17. Peter says, And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. You know, I have to believe that the Holy Spirit is more than willing to be poured out on us, sitting here today and watching online, eager to be poured out on this very group of people right here. But sometimes I think our receptors are clogged. And I have to think, you know, do, do we really want the Holy Spirit as much as he's made it very clear that he wants us? The times that we are living in right now require a much greater watchfulness than just cruising down the road singing our hymns I believe 
that Christianity today is stalled out because we as individuals are stalled out. Are we just cruising down the road telling ourselves that everything's fine without really looking for that orange needle to see what we have and what we're missing? Are we listening to other people who say, oh, don't worry, you're fine, it's good. Instead of really digging into God's word and exploring for ourselves what it says about this power and praying for God to open us up and fill us, could it be that we have never experience that oneness with the Holy Spirit and that we're not sure that that really even matters. One of the most familiar passages in the book of Revelation describes the Christian church in the time before Jesus returned as feeling like they have it all together. They are rich, they are increased in goods, And buddy, they have a full tank. But Jesus, looking deeper, tells them that whatever is inside of them that they are running on is lukewarm. And he finds it despicable. I sometimes hear people talking And they talk about how much the church needs revival. And they could not be more right. How desperately, how desperately we need revival. But it isn't going to happen like a hurricane. The fire is going to touch one person at a time. One heart at a time that is open and eager and combustible. And it's up to each person to open up and allow the Holy Spirit to fill their tank. Stop waiting for the church to experience revival. It's your turn. Holy Spirit, we need you. You know how empty we are. And you know how many excuses we have. Forgive us. Unclog us and open us up to the oneness that you, the Father, and Jesus have ordained for your people since the beginning. Open us up that our desire for you will be greater than anything else. And I pray that you will empower your people to be excited about spreading this amazing news of the salvation of Jesus so we can get the work done 
and go home. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. And I thank you.